You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. In this episode, Indra Nui, the former chair and CEO of PepsiCo, joins Washington Post Live to discuss her new memoir, My Life in Full, Work, Family, and Our Future. In the book, she describes the events that shaped her life from her childhood and early education in 1960s India, to the Yale School of Management, to her rise as a corporate consultant and strategist who ascended to the most senior executive ranks in business. Let's listen. Welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm David Ignatius, a columnist for The Post. Today, our guest is Indra Nui, who's one of the most successful woman CEOs in America as head of PepsiCo. She's written a new book called My Life in Full, Work, family and our future. And we're gonna talk about all three, her business success and a very honest discussion she has of the family work-life issues. Uh, welcome, Indra, thanks for joining us today. David, thank you for having me on the show. Look forward to the conversation. Me, me too. So let's start uh, at the beginning of this story uh, with your childhood, your life as a young woman in India. Uh, you uh, were studying, uh, as I read, at Madras Christian College. You were studying chemistry with some math and physics. Uh, and you decided in 1978 to come to America to go to Yale Business School. Tell us a little bit about the world that shaped you in India and why you made the decision to leave. Mm. I thank you first for having me. And I want to put my life in context because I was born in India eight years after India got independence. So after 350 years of being occupied, this is a newly emerging India, uh, still trying to figure out its role as a country, role in the world, and certainly women, you know, trying to figure out what role women can play in the society. Uh, and I grew, I was born into a progressive family, highly educated family a conservative Brahmin family, which basically said education is everything. But the most important lottery of life that I won was that the men in our family believed women should be allowed to be educated, should be allowed to dream, dream big, and do whatever they wanted to do. So that was the huge advantage that I had growing up because my father and my grandfather basically said, we're going to support your education as much as you want to be, uh, in college and university, please do. And my mother, who was a product of that society, had one leg on the brake and one leg on the accelerator. The accelerator said, I want my kids to have what I didn't have. I want to live my life vicariously through my daughters. The foot on the brake said, God, I'm also a person that lives in the society who says, I've got to get my daughters married at 18. So she applied this brake and accelerator judiciously through our life. But the men had a heavy foot on that accelerator. And so the two of us, my sister and I, and then my brother subsequently, uh, we could go to college. Uh, we both went to business school in India. We both worked in India. But while I was working and in business school in India, most of my friends had left to come to the United States. People had been educated in the Indian Institute of Technology. Brilliant, brilliant young men had all come to the United States because the US was viewed as the country of innovation, invention, entrepreneurship, cultural uh, forefront and everything. And if you really want to be who you are, you want to thrive as an individual, come to the United States. 
it was the most aspiring thing for all of us young people growing up in 70s India. And as a luck of the draw, I applied to the Yale School of Management, got admitted, and most importantly, got a combination of loans and scholarship money and some work uh, programs to be able to afford Yale. And the shock, the biggest shock of them all, my parents allowed me to go. So the combination of these brought me to the shores of New Haven, Connecticut. You describe, uh, Indra, this wonderfully quick and seemingly easy uh, assimilation in, in, into America. You have a great description of falling in love with the New York Yankees and how you cried when Thurman Munson, the Yankees catcher, uh, died in a in a plane crash is is very uh, t touching, but it, it suggests how quickly this young woman from India had become a part of American life. And I want to ask you whether it was really that easy, what the difficulties were, and then secondly, just as important, would that be possible today? Are we as open and welcoming a country as we were in 1978 when you were a young woman arriving here? I'm going to answer the second part first before I go to the first one, David. The second part, I'd say, if you look at all the countries in the world, the United States is still the most open, is still the most welcoming country of any in the world, bar none. So um, let me put that to bed and then get to the first question. When I came to the US in 1970, even in a university like Yale, they didn't have a big infrastructure to support international students, to make them feel welcome, to teach them how to get a mailbox, open a bank account. All those had to be done in those days. They didn't teach us how to shop. I didn't know how to go to a grocery store and pick up groceries because I'd never been to a self-serve store. I'd never been to a store where you have an honor system where you put things in a cart and you pay at checkout. Uh, I didn't know that yogurt was curds, which is what I, I was used to eating. So I was a complete novice when I landed in the United States. And the first two or three days were lonely is an understatement. I must have cried all the time saying, I thought this place was going to be noisy. I thought everybody was going to be bustling around. And that's what I've seen in movies. Yet New Haven, which hadn't yet opened to Yale, because it was still a week away, was quiet. All of graduate studies was like lonely and cavernous. Um, it took a while to get used to it. But once you got the bug, once you got the American bug, it bit you really hard and sort of grabbed you in. And the Yankees at that time was the, uh, were the team that you know, had come from 14 games behind the Red Sox and the famous Bucky Dent um, uh, incident that caused the Yankees to clinch. And um, I was watching all of that. And through the Yankees, I fell in love with American sport, American baseball, the New York Yankees, and overall American culture. It's it's a it's a wonderful little snapshot of uh, of what it is to 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 find your place in in, in any country. Um, I want to ask you about the decisions you made when you left uh, Yale Business School. You decided to be a consultant at one of the very best consulting firms uh, in the world, BCG, and you write about the intensity of those engagements. Uh, and I want to ask you for our young uh, viewers who are interested in business careers, 
the advantages and disadvantages of consulting as opposed to going to work for a mainline company, uh, one of the companies that BCG would be consulting for. Why, why did you choose that path? So the time that I graduated from business school, consulting was considered the most uh, prestigious uh, assignments to take on post uh, business school, not just because they paid well, because they gave you like a five to 10 year head start in your corporate job if you wanted to go into a corporate job later because consulting gave you exposure to multiple industries, multiple issues. Uh, you learned how to behave in a boardroom because BCG was consulting to CEOs. Um, and uh, the fact that you would go through such an intensive interviewing process and emerge with a job offer at the other uh, end was almost a challenge to me. It was a challenge when I applied for a summer job. It was a bigger challenge when I was applying to BCG for a final position. And so when I applied to BCG, I took it on as a challenge. Am I good enough to be a consultant? Uh, you know, am I good enough to be selected amongst all of these people they're going to be interviewing? And remember, the interviews are brutal. You interview with 10 or 12 people. Each one is a case. They make you, uh, you know, demonstrate how you think, how you answer problems. These are not easy uh, uh, interviews on, tell me about your growing up and your love for the Yankees. I wish it was that easy. This was hardcore analysis of cases. And when I came out the other end, I didn't think I was going to get an offer because you don't feel great about all of these interviews. But then I did get the offer. My God, it's impossible not to accept because You've been through the ringer and you've come out whole at the other end. And BCG gave me, I would say, somewhere between a six and 10 year uh, you know, head start in my corporate career because I vaulted over many entry level people who'd come out of Yale at the same time that I did and entered Motorola almost at the senior middle management level, which I would have taken another five years to get to had I entered Motorola as an entry level person. So consulting, especially the top consulting firms, brutal lifestyle, you travel a lot. Uh, you're always in, I was in Chicago, so I was all in all of the small Midwestern towns with manufacturing clients, but I loved what I did. I loved my clients, I loved my work, and I loved the hard work and the challenge of looking at multiple industries. And it's obvious too that you developed analytical skills in advising BCG's clients that were at the center of how you managed at, at PepsiCo. Let's, let's come to, to PepsiCo. You had this interlude at Motorola and then at ABB, that, but then in, in 1994, as I read this, you came to, to PepsiCo. I want to ask you, here's a traditional American uh, retail brands company, uh, Pepsi, obviously, Mountain Dew, uh, uh, snack foods, Fritos, a whole range mm -hmm. of things we can talk about. But you characterize the weaknesses of that culture in a very brief and devastating way. I'm going to quote from your book. You say that when you joined um, PepsiCo, white American men held 15 of the top 15 jobs at PepsiCo when I walked in, I don't believe that any of their wives worked in paid jobs outside of their homes. So this was a very traditional company. And I want you to explain first what it was like for you as an Indian American to come into that company. And second, 
how that traditional culture was hurting the company as you began to, to understand it? Well, I don't think it was hurting the company because we're talking about 1994 and the ideal worker of the times who had worked their way up the company was still the white male who worked outside the home with a wife taking care of the home. Those are the people that ascended to the top of all corporations, not just PepsiCo. The fact that Wayne Calloway, who grew up in that system, made such an outreach to get me into PepsiCo, demonstrated to me that PepsiCo was very keen on bringing diversity into the ranks, into the senior most ranks, and that to bringing somebody in who's outspoken, who was different, who was a globalist, and they're saying, hey, look, come into this company. We want to change. We want your kind of thinking in our senior ranks. And guess what, Wayne said, I'm going to make sure that I develop you and mentor you. And it was not just Wayne, Bob Detmer, who was CFO at that time, who actually was my boss, was an unbelievable supporter and mentor who made me feel very, very welcome. So the fact that 15 of the 15 men who occupied senior positions were all white men was not a judgment I was making. I'm just saying that was what I observed. But they made me feel very, very welcome in a company where, you know, the brands were iconic American. The business model was not something I was really used to. I didn't know restaurants because we own KFC, Taco Bell, and Pizza Hut. I had to learn everything from scratch. But the BCG training helped me uh, you know, really uh, get my feet wet. But I must say, I would not call PepsiCo an old-fashioned company. I'd call it a youthful, progressive, welcoming company. And had they not been that, I wouldn't be here talking to you today. Uh, useful, useful point. You mentioned the PepsiCo brands of the time, uh, Pizza Hut, KFC, uh, Taco Bell, and one of the interesting business stories you tell in the book is about the uh, painful decision for a company that thought of those brands as part of the family of brands uh, that they all nurtured. The decision to, to, to uh, spin off that restaurant uh, business. Tell us about that. Tell us why it hurt. Tell us why it was the right thing for PepsiCo at the time. Great question. I think when the restaurant business, especially the quick serve restaurant business, the QSR business, was growing in leaps and bounds. And what you really needed was the financial capability to build restaurants, uh, get franchisees, and grow fast. PepsiCo was very good at it. When the growth rate in the quick serve restaurant industry slowed down because every new unit you built cannibalized an existing unit you had already. So the overall growth rate slowed down. You had to move from your financial skills to a service culture where you actually worried about in-restaurant service, how you treated customers. A very different group of people needed to get involved. PepsiCo is full of bright young people and packaged goods people who love to do brands, advertising, marketing. But we were not a service culture-oriented business. So it became very clear to us that we needed to unfetter the restaurant business from the packaged goods culture. So it was not a separation, it was an unfettering of the restaurant business from the packaged goods company. And when we did this, painful though it was, the restaurant business began to soar under the leadership of Andy Pearson and then David Novak. And it did exceedingly well. 
way better than it would have done under a PepsiCo. And PepsiCo could then focus on all the packaged goods that it was very good at and did very well on its own. So I think the biggest learning from all of this is we all might get into businesses, but we have to know when that business and the driver of that business value is not what the company is good at managing against and know when to separate it out from the mothership. And that's what we did in 1996 with the restaurant business. Famously, uh, PepsiCo and Coca-Cola have been um, battling for market share, two iconic now global brands. Um, you write in your book that there was almost a complex uh, at, at Pepsi about Coke, about the way Coke managed its business. Coke, you know, was a darling of Warren Buffett. It had some iconic uh, CEOs, uh, Guzetta, Mutar Kent. Uh, it seemed to be the very definition, as I remember, as a business editor, of what a global company was 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 all about. How did you uh, regard the, the Coke challenge, if you will, when you were at Pepsi? What did you learn from them? Uh, what are you glad you didn't try to emulate? Well, you know, we were very different companies. We were both competing head to head as if we were the same company. Uh, there was a company with 100% beverages. We were, you know, 45, 50% beverages. Their trademark red brand was 70% of the company's revenues. For us, brand Pepsi was 25% of the revenue. So they were very different companies. But here's an interesting story. Uh, uh, we always viewed ourselves as a timely company competing against what we call a timeless company because Pepsi was about the next generation, choice of a new generation, living for now, shaping the future. Uh, the other brand was about maintaining traditions and staying exactly the way they were. So here were two great companies competing in the beverage business in very different ways, but made us both better. And I'll tell you one thing, had we not had the company down south, the red company down south as a competitor, we would have invented a company to go fight against because PepsiCo does the best when we have a great competitor real or imagined that's coming after us, that brings out the creative juices, that makes us want to do more. And I think if you look at the Roger and Rico years, when the battle between the two companies was intense, that's when the creative juices of PepsiCo came out, the Michael Jacksons, the Britney Spears, all of that great advertising that people talk about even today, uh, with, uh, with a big smile and with a sort of a, a step in their uh, movement, all came because PepsiCo was competing so aggressively with the company down south. Those were, were fun uh, uh, corporate war wars to, to watch. And I should have mentioned Roger Enrico's is one of those hero managers uh, that, we, that we read about. But one more work question, then I wanna turn to the other part of your book that, that fascinated me. Um, at a certain point, I, you say that you were concerned that, that Pepsi, at least in its beverage and snack business, was in the, the sugar, fat, and salt business, and that you just didn't feel comfortable with that. So you begin to buy some different brands. You buy Tropicana, you buy Quaker Oats, which has Gatorade as part of its business. Huge move for, for, for Pepsi. So, and then, and then you come up with this idea that, that, that your company is gonna be about performance with purpose. 
Mm. Just describe that transition, trying to th think about the company in somewhat different terms uh, from, you know, the Michael Jackson, you know, beverage of, of young people to something different. So the, you know, big companies, we are built to last. We have to keep reinventing ourselves for the future because if we don't, we atrophy and we die over time. And the best way to reinvent yourself and future-proof yourself is to look at the megatrends. What are the big trends, you know, 10 years, 15 years out that could be uh, majorly disruptive for us today? Um, and how do we make sure we make the changes so that we are not caught flat-footed when these trends come upon us? We did such an exercise and it became very clear that consumers were shifting their tastes to healthier products. Not super healthy products, but healthier products, lower calorie products, products with some nutrients in it. And a lot of upstarts were coming and taking away all of the growth. So if the overall market was growing at five to 6%, the upstarts were growing you know, 30, 40%, and the mainline companies were growing two to 3%. To me, that was an existential threat because we were giving up on this big opportunity resulting from the consumer taste shifting. And if we kept this up, pretty soon these upstarts, we would have to buy them at some ridiculous multiple, or they were going to start replacing us as the incumbent company. Now, when you see these trends, not just based on the research you're doing, based on your own eating and drinking habits, the drinking and eating habits of your own employees, who are all consumers, you realize that you have to do something about it. So that was one trend. The second is that when we analyzed our own PepsiCo business, before 10 a.m. in the morning, people did not consume a PepsiCo product. So from the morning, midnight to 10 a.m., no PepsiCo product was consumed. So the breakfast day path was open to us. And most people eat and drink healthily during breakfast. So the first thing we did was bought Tropicana because that was a breakfast beverage that was much loved. Then we bought Quaker Oats, which again, was a uh, you know, iconic health and wellness breakfast cereal. And so that now opened up the breakfast day part. And then we started to shift the entire portfolio to say, we're not working, walking away from Pepsi. We're not walking away from Mountain Dew or Doritos or any of that stuff. Those are awesome products. I'm a consumer myself, but we're going to balance the portfolio. We're going to take these fun for you products, provide the consumer with a whole bunch of better for you products reduce the salt, fat in our snacks, dial up the zero calorie products and beverages, and then massively dial up the good for you products. Gatorade just for athletes, the Quaker Oats, the Sabra Hummus, the Naked Juice, dial those up. And so the portfolio was gonna be, be you know, fun for you, better for you, good for you. And we were gonna nudge consumers by putting the better for you products at eye level, so that we can slowly transition customers from the fun for you portfolio to the better for you portfolio, but keep them within the PepsiCo family, as opposed to having them go off to young upstarts or other beverages that promised a lot, but in reality, what was in the bottle or can wasn't really what was on the label, but they could get away with it because it was small companies. So this was a significant transformation, but it was done with the intent to future-proof this company in light of the changing consumer trends. And change takes time. So we had to make the investments and execute upon the change program. It's fascinating. It's almost a social 
history of America seen through uh, your your company, your corporate life. So I want to turn now to the, the other part of your book, which is a very frank discussion of your life as a as a woman manager, the issues of work life balance. Um, there's a lot of straight talk in this book. I'm going I'm to quote you a couple of passages. One, in one you say, I think women are held to a different standard from men when it comes to celebrating their professional accomplishments. No matter what we do, we're never quite enough. That's an expression of frustration. I'll bet uh, so many of us have heard at home. What is that, that sense that women have that it's never enough, they can never satisfy all the demands on them? I mean, I would love to get an answer to this question, David. I'm searching for it. Um, it's amazing. A woman is either too loud or too soft. She's too emotional or she's got no commitment. She comes across as too passionate or, you know, she's dressed too female or dressed too male. For some reason, we feel like we have to paint women into one of two extremes and make it out that both extremes are wrong. So women can never be just a woman and just a executive and just a manager. We have to give them a, a negative, negatively tinged uh, badge. And second is this prompts this discussion, which I talk about, I think, in one of the later chapters, the and but. When we evaluate a woman, we go, uh, this woman has done all the things we asked her to do, but this is the one thing she still has to prove or, but I don't like this part of her performance. When it came to men, and I'm not trying to male bash, I'm just giving you a fact. When it came to men, this guy did pretty good. He delivered on most of his commitments and he's got great potential and he's gonna conquer the world. Hang on a second. You just said she did everything, but he didn't do all of it. And why do we have this and but phenomenon? And I've never gotten a good answer to it, but I've seen this time and time and time again. And the only explanation I can give is the ideal worker is still viewed as the male, the nine to five job somebody who's got no family commitments that encroach upon their business life. And somehow everybody's judged against this person. And I think that time has come for us to rethink all of these uh, uh, thoughts and habits of the past, because the ideal worker of today and tomorrow looks very different and should look very different. You have another, uh, to me, moving discussion of your own the husband and partner Raj, who was a mm -hmm. business success in his own right at Hewlett Packard and other companies. But you, you say this, in the crunch years for working women with growing kids and a demanding job, I think our spouses do take a back seat and they have to be able to handle it. It's a very frank um, discussion of a problem again that I'll bet a lot of households of our viewers have thought about. Talk a little bit about how your husband Raj had to take that back seat as your career was just on a rocket ship. You know, my husband's always said that my list goes PepsiCo, PepsiCo, PepsiCo. Then he'll say, it's your kids, as if they were just my kids. Then he'll say, it's your mom. Then he'll say, somewhere in the bottom is me. My answer, jokingly, but painfully was, just be happier on the list, which is not a good answer. But the fact of the matter is, the job was all consuming. It was all consuming for me as a CEO, as it is for men when they're CEOs. 
but it was all consuming because not only did I have to do the job, I also had to battle all of the uh, little uh, social battles I had to fight day in and day out. So I'd come home completely exhausted, intellectually exhausted, emotionally exhausted, physically exhausted. When I saw my kids, although they were a bit grown up now, focusing on them was most important because mommy was home. They had so many things to discuss with me and they were both daughters. So I gave them my undivided attention, whatever I could when I got home. And then, you know, just bustling about making sure whatever required my attention at home, I gave it the proper time and uh, care. But then when my husband comes home, I don't have the energy and time for him. And in those days, you need a very understanding spouse to say, you know what, let me see how I can give her a hand to ease some of the issues that she's going through when she comes home. And that's what Raj did so brilliantly. He'd say, hey, let me take care of these home issues. Don't worry about it. You spend time with the daughters. Read all the stuff you have to for the next day. I can see you've got three bags of stuff to read. Go do it. And you and I can chat on the weekend when we get a free time because I have some things to go over with you. So he was very, very accommodating. But it's not just Raj. I think it's his family. His entire family, his parents, his uncles and aunts would always call and say, how is Indra doing? Is she, is she okay? Do you want us to come out and give you a hand? And they would tell Raj, make sure you support her. Make sure you give her all the encouragement. So I had not just a spouse, I had his whole family, which was highly unusual, that uh, were proud of me, that supported me and gave me the tailwinds I needed. I don't think I could have done it without that entire ecosystem of support. There's so many other things I'd like to talk about in this book. It's, it's called My Life in, in Full. Um, it fits in such an interesting way with the political debate we're having this very week about whether human infrastructure, support for daycare, for elder care, for all the things that bolster family life is worth spending a whole lot of money on. I want to thank Indra Nuri for being our guest. It's been a wonderful discussion. Come back and see us. Thank you, Indra. Thank you for having me, David. Appreciate it. So uh, we'll be back with more uh, great programming on Washington Post Live. Go to WashingtonPostLive.com to register. Check out the shows we've got coming up and sign up for them. Uh, we'll look forward to seeing you in the future. Thanks for joining us this morning. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.